understand the relationship of beauty and uh, and uh, the media, Mr. Park, but uh, your Howard Cassell example absolutely threw me. Um, uh, I did spend uh, some few years in Washington, D.C., and before feder uh, going into federal service, I called a friend of mine to ask him what it was like to work for the uh, bureaucracy in Washington. He said it was much like the man who was lost in the, in the jungle and to add to his misery, he was being chased by a lion. And uh, in desperation, he remembered his early religious upbringing. And um, so he gasped a prayer and said, oh, God, please convert this lion into a Christian. Well, lo and behold, a miracle occurred. The lion uh, dropped to its knees, uh, folded its paws, looked toward heaven, and said, Oh, God, bless this food of which we're about to partake. My friend was absolutely prophetic. I was devoured every day, but I <laughs> don't remember anyone ever saying grace before the meal. I would like this morning, here in Minneapolis... Uh, to say a word about the unsung heroes of this conference. Uh, we're assembled here, outstanding students, and what I read on the program to be the captains of achievement. Uh, but I should like to say a word, at least two cheers, for the pilots behind the captains. The truth is that in classrooms in Tennessee and New Jersey and California and North Dakota, there are teachers who have provided inspiration for the achievers who have assembled here in Minneapolis, teachers who have perhaps changed your life forever, and yet individuals who all too often are forgotten and ignored. Uh, during my days as Commissioner of Education, I uh, called together a group of students uh, very similar, although smaller, to this magnificent congregation here today. We had a provocative discussion, and as I have been this weekend, I was enormously reassured about the future of this nation. But near the end of our conversation, I said, before you leave, I have just one simple question. How many of you have had a teacher who has genuinely shaped your life in a dramatic way? And not to my surprise, every hand went up. Indeed, if I were to pause in Quaker fashion this morning and ask for you to reflect, I would suspect that immediately one powerfully important teacher would come to mind. And then I said, I have just a second question. How many of you have ever thanked a teacher? And not one hand was raised. <clears throat> and then after a moment of awkward silence, one of the young women said, well, you see, it's just not the thing to do. And I thought that's a sad and poignant comment on our culture. Uh, we are, by our own confession, enormously influenced by those who've gone before, by those whose time and energy and talent has caused us to gain insights and wisdom and even deep reverence. And yet somehow it's not quite cool to say thank you graciously and spontaneously to those who've given so much to us. We completed at the Carnegie Foundation a report a year ago called a report on secondary education in America, high school. We visited over 
2,000 hours in high schools from coast to coast, we talked to literally hundreds of teachers and students. And I must tell you, I ended that study deeply troubled by the status of teachers in this nation. We expect them to be heroic every single day, and yet we extend to them very little recognition and reward. I told the students uh, who had met with me in Washington that we're asking teachers to do uh, almost the impossible, to meet with sometimes 150 students in a single day. And those students sit and gaze at them as if their brontosaurus warmed over and give no signal of response. I said, that's asking more of any human being. So perhaps too flippantly, I said, before you graduate, make me one promise, will you? Uh, take a teacher to lunch instead of have one for lunch, and they all agreed they would. <clears throat> I'm bringing you one simple thought this morning. We are here today because of teachers who've shaped our lives. Just two weeks ago, my wife, who's a certified nurse midwife, delivered our eighth grandchild, and I've been walking that little bundle of energy, uh, and I've studied and thought that Soon the influence of teachers will make that child something heroic or diminished. I'm saying it's time to give teachers the recognition they deserve. Last night, I had a marvelous set of conversations with some of you at that stunningly impressive reception. And I discovered that some of you will be nurses and some of you will be computer specialists uh, one brilliant young man said he wanted to be a transplant surgeon and <laughs> reintroduce spare parts. Uh, another plans to be an engineer. Uh, all of these essential. I'm tempted to ask if anyone in the room this morning plans to be a teacher. You, in my judgment, will be the heroes of the future. Uh, a few hands went up. These are the gifted students in the nation. The data are not encouraging, you know. Forty percent ten years ago of all entering college freshmen said they planned to be a teacher. Last year, five percent declared that as their profession, and these were the least, not the most stable students in the nation. We cannot have a bright and promising future in America unless we are willing to give careful and respectful attention to the powerful priority of the teacher who changes lives forever. During our study, I walked unannounced into a classroom in the inner city in New Haven. It was an open classroom, one of these dreadful places that looks more like a drafty gymnasium than a classroom. And I saw in the corner a sixth grade class uh, clustered tightly around the teacher, and at first I feared for his life. It looked as if they were denying him oxygen and an act of hostility and aggression. But when I got closer, I discovered, lo and behold, that sixth grade inner city class was caught up in the magic of reading Charles Dickens' Oliver Twist. And for 40 minutes, they were reading that strange syntax. And they were going on excitedly to find how little Oliver was going to survive in an urban jungle. 
And that teacher had performed a miracle. He quite literally had brought 19th century London to New Haven. Those children understood the good guys and the bad guys. Never mind the language, they were all cheering that Oliver would beat the system because that's what they experienced every day. The magic of a great teacher would live on forever. About three months ago, I finished a television interview in Los Angeles, and the cameraman came around to speak to me as soon as the interview was over, and he said, I want to tell you about my first grade teacher. I said, okay, what about her? He said, well, he said she, he was an old duffer, at least uh, as old as I, he said. He says, he says, well, she went on a Christmas recess, and she sent me a picture postcard. And he said, I don't remember the picture on the card. And he said, I don't remember the message that she wrote, but he said, I'll never forget that she addressed it, Mr. Andy Johnson. And then, <laughs> then this old guy's eyes glazed over, and he said, she called me Mr. She thought I was somebody. At first, I worried about a guy who for 50 years had <laughs> was basking in the glow of a picture postcard. <clears throat> but then I said, no, that's what it's all about. Can you imagine, for 50 years, Riveted in that man's head was the notion that he was somebody because a teacher to some kid with a runny nose wrote a wrote a card and said you're a mister Perhaps inadvertently I'm suggesting without getting maudlin or sentimental that the teachers are the unsung heroes of the nation I look back over every achiever that has been who has been awarded uh, a recognition by this outstanding institution and I was absolutely stunned by the power and the significance of this assembly. But I had to tell you there was a poignancy that, so far as I could tell, not one classroom teacher has been honored as an achiever in this nation, and yet there would be no achievers without those teachers. The other night I couldn't sleep, and instead of counting sheep, I counted all the teachers I'd had. And there, were a few there were a few nightmares, <laughs> uh, to be sure, but on balance they were quite good, and I found four who were absolutely stunning. Uh, a sixth grade teacher who said that I was doing well in history, a college professor who said that I should be a teacher someday myself. A senior advisor who called me in one day and said, I think you're worried about something, let's talk it over. And another teacher who never went to college, my grandfather, who the first memory of my life came to pray for me when I had pneumonia. And I think I'm here today because I had a great teacher, my grandfather, who had a great faith and I think is in heaven um, uh, looking down today. Teachers, you see, are those who give us messages that we recall forever. I'm suggesting then that uh, one final exam before you leave for college. The first question would be, have you thanked the teachers who have given you the wisdom and the inspiration in your life? And the second question, will some of you, the nation's most gifted students, go into the classrooms to prepare the achievers of tomorrow. I know teachers are not well paid. I know recognition is often low. I'm suggesting, however, that in addition to building rockets and building computers, there is something noble about building lives. One of my favorite verses is Vachel Lindsay, who wrote on one occasion, it is the world's one crime, its babes grow dull. Not that they sow, but that they seldom reap. 
Not that they serve, but have no God to serve. Not that they die, but that they die like sheep. The tragedy of your life will not be death. God has ordained death for us all. The tragedy of your life will be to live with convictions unfulfilled and with service uh, undelivered to your fellow men and women. And in my judgment, teaching is one of life's noblest vocations, and I commend it to you all. I'll be happy to respond to any questions that you may have. Yes, please. Dr. Boyer, yes. in 1983, the National Commission on Excellence in, on, in Education reported that a rising tide of mediocrity has swept through America's schools. Yes. My question is twofold. Number one, what is your feeling on the significance of this threat? And number two, what role should the, national, the federal government play in mitig mitigating the threat? Yes, two. Thank you. First, um, I would insist that the schools deserve some A's as well as F's. I don't think public education in this country is adequate, but I'm troubled by the hyperbole that creates the impression that we do not have outstanding schools and stunningly effective teachers as well as some failures too, point one. Let's just have a report card that's accurate and not sensationalized is my uh, first response. But number two, our schools are not adequate for the challenges ahead. I'm deeply troubled by the fact that we are not, in my judgment, developing an adequate understanding of our global interdependence, for example. We do not have enough training in engineering and science, and above all, my pet peeve, we do not give adequate recognition of the centrality of language, which has to begin in the early years. And. And I think, frankly, we are also misunderstanding the elegance and centrality of the arts, which is another form of language which defines the quality of our civilization. Um, I was so caught up in that question, I forgot your second one. <laughs> what role? The federal government, government, of course. I know I forgot it now. <laughs> Should have stopped while I was ahead. Uh, I think there's a federal role. Um, the federal government can't solve the education problem. It can be an important partner. First, to help achieve equality. Um, when I was commissioner, we advanced the compensatory education program in which federal funds were sent into very, very poor districts to help children in the early years develop basic language and mathematics skills in order to catch up. We should have local districts and state control, but we need some degree of federal partnership to achieve equity among the rich and the poor, especially where you have pockets of children who are disadvantaged. That's the first and most essential role of federal. It's a, it's a moral and it's a constitutional obligation, say the courts. Second, I think it's resp the response of the federal government to, res to help us if we are in an emergency with short-term intervention. The National Commission report was called a nation at risk. It was entitled a state at risk or a local district. And if the nation is at risk, if we've had unilateral disarmament, and I use those terms that they used, then I think there should be some national response. For example, and consistent with my remarks, 
I would like to see a federal teacher scholarship program for young scholars so that some of you could get full tuition with the understanding that you would teach for several years in the public schools just as you might go on Peace Corps assignments or in VISTA. In my judgment, the nation's classrooms are as exciting and urgently in need as distant countries, and your scholarship would be forgiven if you'd served for several years in the public schools, just as when I was commissioner, the health department in Washington had a scholarship program for physicians. You'd have your scholarship paid and then forgiven if you worked for several years in a national health clinic. So it is with teachers. I'd rather see some of our brightest young teachers teach four or five years in the public schools than to have some of our third-rate people teach for 30. And therefore, a term of service aided by federal scholarship seems to be a marvelously imaginative point of federal leadership that I think would be consistent uh, with the challenge that the commission presented. In the end, though, only perhaps 10% of the federal funds for education or funds for education should come from Washington. It's primarily a state and local responsibility. Thank you. Thank you, Doctor. Yeah. Tying in somewhat with the uh, first question that was asked over there, in a society that's changing so rapidly as ours, do you think the schools are doing an adequate job of teaching students how to think, teaching students how to continue to teach themselves for the rest of their lives? Yeah. Or do you think that that's not an important issue? It's a central issue because 12 years or 14 years or 16 years, that has to be the beginning, as you said, in a rapidly changing world. And if you don't develop the skill of critical thinking and the capacity to continue to learn, then in a decade or so you're going to be obsolete. You, you and the answer to your question is no, it's not being done adequately. In the classroom surveys that we completed along with John Goodlad, the students remain the silent partners. The, the teachers do all the talking, almost always. And when the students do respond, it's usually yes-no responses. Not, we are not doing what Mortimer Adler, my great mentor, uh, describes as the Socratic method, in which questions are put to students, not answers. And they're asked to give clear responses and then critiqued on those questions. Um, a little like President Carter said, he was critiqued by Admiral Rickover. Now there's a tough teacher. <laughs> it left him sweating, but it left him, it seems to me, more authentic and more thoughtful. That doesn't happen in many classrooms, and unless we strengthen language and critical thinking, I don't think we're preparing students for tomorrow. So you think that's the key? I think it is the key. Yes, indeed. Yes, Final sir. question, please. Final question. One of the key problems seems to be that teaching is an art and not a science, and that there's not real professional and community agreement on how to make a good teacher and what yeah. a good teacher consists of. What do you think the ideal curriculum for schools of education would oh, be? Oh, boy. <laughs> uh, well, uh, first, I, uh, a great teacher has three elements, if I might be so bold. A great teacher uh, has something to teach, that is, you're informed in a subject. Second, you're a good communicator. You talk at the level and you listen at the level that the students understand. And third, you're an authentic human being, so you teach not just your subject but yourself. The ones who I think are great in my life were the ones that became believable because they were open and authentic, they laughed, they cried, sometimes they said, I don't know. I understood them and I trusted them as I did a friend. Those are the elements of teaching. Now, in my judgment, therefore, uh, the first requirement is to become master of a subject, establish a general knowledge, and then, in my judgment, spend time as, with a mentor in a classroom 
just as a surgeon does in surgery, which to me is the best method of teacher preparation. That is, engaged in teaching in a laboratory with a great teacher who can help critique you and give you models on how to succeed. Uh, I think you learn to teach by teaching under the guidance of a great teacher. Rarely can you develop those skills by sitting in Education 101 and taking notes from an assistant professor who tells you how to teach. Um, I close with my favorite verse written on the back of a commencement program after I'd given what I thought was a stunning speech. And one in the audience wrote this verse in my honor. It was, I love a finished speaker. I mean, I really do. I don't mean one who's polished. I just mean one who's through. Thank you very much. Thank you.